0: Last time we were looking at a couple of botanical books and we were looking particularly at the botanical engravings and they were Philip Miller's Gardener's Dictionary and we were looking at John Hill's Eden. I thought how nice it is when you see them in colour. You know, the difference between black and white and colour.
1: Today Georgia fills us in on producing 18th century hand-coloured books.
0: So in the 1760s, nobody could actually print in colour yet, or at least not commercially. So any books that were, were coloured, in inverted commas, or designed to be coloured, had to be coloured by hand. And that's sort of what this talk's going to be around. It's around hand colouring and what a difference it makes, basically, when you get colour in a book.
1: Welcome to Meet Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince.
0: They're still not popular books. They are artworks. Yeah, absolutely. So I've sort of leapt a little bit because it's still connected to Philip Miller because what happened with Philip Miller's dictionary was that it continued to be reprinted. And with time, a new set of plates was printed. They were first published in 1760. Um, So the last edition we looked at was the seventh edition of 1759. So in 1760, I don't know whether you could say in response to demand, but I sort of feel that it must have been the case, (laughs) there was this set of what they called figures of beautiful, useful and uncommon plants described in the gardener's dictionary exhibited on 300 copper plates. So that volume of the Gardener's Dictionary A to Z, you know, with all the plant names and and a few plates in it, mostly greenhouse-type constructions, was followed almost instantly by this book called Figures of Beautiful, Useful and Uncommon Plants. That was published to be coloured. And it was really in the area of botany that the drive to add colour was strongest in the 18th century. There were some other books that were published with coloured illustrations, but mostly it's plants and and particularly the scientific uh, sort of community of people who were trying to classify plants and to describe them carefully and not just for the purposes of gardening them and how you, how you actually grow them, but also to identify the differences between them. And to do that, you need colour. You can't do it without it. So what, what we have in the collection is not that first edition of 1760. We have the third edition, which is actually in the early 19th century, but it's still printed from the same plates. So that's what I'm going to show you now. And it's in two volumes. So this is volume one. So this is, again, this is Philip Miller. And folio edition. And, and I'll just... Hand-coloured. Hand coloured. yeah, absolutely. Because nothing was printed in colour until sort of 1830-ish. And that's actually, they were lithographs. But we're going to look at hand-colouring. So this is before people printed in colour. Um, the binding of this is a little... Um, tender. In fact, it's lost its front boards, but we will move on to the beginning. The title page, which I shall read out. So it indicates that this book was supposed to be in colour. Um, Figures of beautiful, useful and uncommon plants described in the Gardener's Dictionary, which we saw last time, exhibited on 300 copper plates, accurately engraven and coloured. So you didn't get a version uncoloured version. There was no point, basically. This this is a sort of that, that's what basically what that means. And commonly in the past some books had been coloured by hand, but they would often be and most of them would have been uncoloured. Um, so accurately engraven and coloured after drawings taken from nature, with the characters of their flowers and fruits drawn when they were in their greatest perfection. To which is added an account of the classes and orders to which they belong, according to Linnaeus's method of classing them. So we're now right into the Linnaean classification, with their places of growth, times of flowering, and other particulars, by the late Philip Miller. So by this stage, Philip Miller has died, and um, because this is eighteen o nine, so this is the third edition of this particular work to come out, in two volumes. So the preface, where there's some description of. The plan of the splendid work as it was first offered to the public by Mr Miller was very extensive, you know, so it talks about the significance, really, of the dictionary. So we have letterpress at the beginning, which is descriptions of the plates. So they're fairly abbreviated. They're not huge. So the whole thing about this is about the pictures. So we've got all the plates here. Again, I think this was first published in, certainly the first edition was published in parts So that's the first plate. And there's a couple of things you might notice about this. And one that stands out is the remarkably hideous stamp. Mm -hmm. These volumes um, are particularly um, disfigured, one has Mm -hmm. to say, by the library stamp which was put on them when they came into the library. And this is Sir George Grey's copy. Mm -hmm. So this came into the library when his books arrived in the library in 1887. So, you know, we are talking about somebody in probably the 1880s or maybe early 1890s going through and stamping most, Mm -hmm. in this volume not all the plates, in the other volume all the plates, every single one stamped. The other interesting thing about this is that the key (laughs) colour to the plate is green. You notice Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) So... It's engraved on a copper plate and the colours added by hand. But in this case, the first colour, the key colour that they've used to print is is actually green. It only actually happens for a few of the plates and there is a a sort of pale, reddy colour that they used as well, which is quite interesting. Um, But all the other colours are added by hand. And in the 18th century and early, it's quite hard to work out who was doing the colouring. If somebody was the artist, and I'll show you another book in a minute, where we know that he did, the engraver did the colouring, so we know that that colouring was done by the the engraver. But in this case, we don't know who did the colouring. And certainly by the early 19th century, when colouring plates was becoming more common, there was a whole industry around colouring and publishers had their own teams of colourists who would do it for them if they were like Ackerman's publications I'm particularly thinking of. And we do know that in those cases they often used stencils so that the colours were applied consistently because one of the problems with hand colouring is consistency. You know, how do you do it and how does every colour look Right. And those stencils were mostly done by women and children as piecework Mm -hmm. and would have been probably appallingly paid. So there is a sort of element of sweatshop activity involved in this type of colouring. But at this stage, which is earlier, this is 1809, don't know whether we're talking about that type of activity or whether we're talking about something a little more high-end. And probably smaller numbers of the book published as a consequence because if you're colouring every book and you've got 300 plates to get through, mm-hmm. you can't imagine that that's going to be quick mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not going to be cheap. You can see there are different artists credited down the bottom. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of artists who did the um, who did the drawings from the plates and the most famous of them is George Airay who doesn't appear there. So, all this is so the colouring here you can see in the green, even there, that it's shaded. You know it's not just a plonk, <laughs> everything is green. That's still at this point using pigments. There's no chemical colour at this point, so you have to you have to get the correct pigment. I mean, presumably the some commercial. Way of making them available, so you mightn't be starting right from scratch as you were in the medieval period with a hunk of rock or something. But they're still, yeah, they're watercolors. Yeah, there was an original watercolor drawing done by an artist, and there are several of them. An arrow is one of them, and a man called Landcake is another one. And there's a another Miller involved, um, as we noticed in in I think the Gardener's Dictionary. There was a Miller mentioned, um, who was an artist, not Philip Miller's family, but another one. So there were several artists. They produced the watercolour painting. The engraver engraves the plate from the watercolour painting. And then the watercolour painting is your master for the colouring. But how that was done, the actual practicalities of that, I don't know. It would be interesting to compare this book to another copy of the book so that you can see, is there a difference between the hand colouring in this sort of environment where people are not just doing a decorative scheme <laughs> but are actually trying to do this color accurately the other thing that's interesting with hand coloring is looking at it with a magnifying glass cuz you know you can see quite a lot of detail when you when you go up, when you do this you can see when they go over the lines and you know so you know sometimes when people say is something hand colored or is it printed it's quite clear when you <laughs> when you get this because there are delicate little ways in which even the best hand colourist goes over the line. <laughs> and you can you can see it when you're up close. Mm, the colours are lovely and vivid, and as we know, um, that's because the book stays closed. Um, if this was out under lights for any length of time, it wouldn't look like this. <laughs> see, see this one? I think this one's quite interesting in terms of the colour because that's quite an opaque, rather grey-looking colour, and I don't know whether that colour is actually as it was meant to be. And that's another possibility, you know, with with colour that's applied by hand. That. Mm. Um, over time different reactions can happen with colour um, and sometimes you certainly notice that in medieval manuscripts but I, that to me doesn't look quite right so I think that maybe that's an example of one. So that's volume one of the, of the um, Philip Miller. The other thing I wanted to show you really was the fact that it's accompanied by four volumes now of the gardeners so the gardener's dictionary has now morphed from one volume that we saw at in 1759 to four. And this is edited by a man called Thomas Martin who's carried on from Philip Miller who and he was also a, a botanist Thomas Martin and this is this is him following the dictionary and with a preface and description of you know what's happened to the dictionary in the intervening period. So this is actually 1807. And he said the last edition of the Folio Dictionary had been published in 1768. So the one we looked at was 1759. So the last edition prior to this one was 1768. And this one is now in four volumes... And, with, yeah, and then he talks about plates accompanying it, but the plates are actually the, the, these figures. So we've actually got now a six-volume work of, mm. compared to one that started out in 1731 or whenever the first dictionary was as one volume. So in the intervening period, plant hunters have been coming back from Asia and from America particularly and from South America with all these new species and nurserymen like Philip Miller, because that's basically what he was, have been spending all this energy on trying to get them to grow in an English environment. And so the gardener's dictionary tells you how to do that. <laughs> that's, that's one of its advantages, and that's why it's popular. And that's why any aristocratic or gentry family with a garden would have wanted a copy of this, because this would enable them to grow exotic plants would enable their gardeners to grow exotic plants because obviously they wouldn't be doing it. (laughs) This one's also dedicated to Joseph Banks, which I just thought you might find interesting because at this point he's the president of the Royal Society. So we mentioned the Royal Society before as this sort of great scientific body in Britain. And he was also, and it says, one of His Majesty's most most honourable Privy Council. So he's the dedicatee. And I will now take out this one. Um, And this is a book by a man called Moses Harris in a modern Mm. binding, modern rebinding, quite a nice modern rebinding, but a modern rebinding nevertheless with marbled papers, marbled paper and leather, quite nicely done. And here is the title page and the lovely and rather what's the word? Sort of allegorical mm. frontispiece piece which mm. is quite hard quite hard to follow. Mm. Quite hard to work out what it is. Mm. So there's the insects yeah. um, that are all creeping towards what looks like some mm. sort of goddess on mm. a plinth, on a plinth. <laughs> but what the alligator is doing, I oh, presume yeah. such a there's an alligator and a frog and a lizard. And then insects. Anyway, it's quite a (laughs) fascinating-looking allegorical title page. And, of course, a lovely (coughs) engraved title page. Exposition of English Insects, including the several classes of, and I won't describe them, exhibiting on 15 copper plates, near 500 figures, accurately drawn and highly finished in colours from nature. Minutely described arranged and named according to the Linnaean system with remarks. The figures of a great number of moths, not in the Aurelian collection, formerly published by the same author, and a plate with an explanation of colours are likewise given in the work by Moses Harris. So Moses Harris is an entomologist, an early entomologist, um, and an engraver. So the whole thing is done by this man, Moses Mm. Harris. He's done the engravings and he's done all the work on describing the insects. The Aurelian Society was an early entomology society, Aurelian or Aurelius being another word or used as a synonym for chrysalis, apparently. Uh, I had to look that one up. This is 1782. The mentioned a plate with an explanation of colours. Unfortunately, the plate with the colour wheel on it that he actually had is not present in this edition, which is a great pity, but the description of the colours is there. So there's a whole page here where there's an explanation. The text is in English and French, which is probably symptomatic of the, what's the word, the exchange of scientific ideas between France, well, not just scientific mm-hmm. art as well, but you know, the exchange of ideas between France and Britain prior to the revolution because we're still in pre-revolutionary France and in everything French is still highly fashionable in the UK and other parts of Europe. So there are descriptions of the different colours and there was this plate, <laughs> which this edition doesn't have, which showed you the colours on a colour wheel. Apparently in this edition it's common for the plate not to be in it and yeah which is a pity because that would have been interesting but then when you see the pla- the wow. the insects these are all hand colored by him this is another of these you know astonishing publications mm-hmm. done by somebody who does everything mm-hmm. so yes we know he colored these mm-hmm. because not only is there there's that description at the beginning about the colors and what they mean and the fact that he there was there are color wheels in some of these editions of the of this book but he also, quite separately, produced a treatise on colour, which is incredibly rare. There's only, I think, known to be about... Two, there's only two sort of copies known. There's a later edition in the early 19th century of it, but the, but the copy that was produced in his lifetime by him, I think there's one in the Royal, no, the Royal Academy um, and one in, in Yale. And that's Mm -hmm. all anybody knows about. Blessedly free, thanks to the Mm -hmm. fact that this was purchased in a later and more, Mm -hmm. um, what's the word I was going to (laughs) say? Purchased (laughs) in a more enlightened, that's the word I was looking for, more enlightened age. We have not gone through or has not gone through and stamped all the plates. I mean, that stamping (laughs) of plates was done to prevent theft. I mean, you know why it was done, Mm -hmm. and it's true that... That books have been mm. damaged you know, By people who have Unscrupulously mm. cut out plates mm. From lovely books And colour plates are a prime mm. target Because you can sell them for a lot of money As a mm. single plate mm. And if you look online mm-hmm. Under Moses Harris You'll find prints for sale From Moses Harris Not from this book so much as from one of his other books And you would also find them for sale From that book So it's not as thoughtless as it sounds, but from our perspective with probably greater security where we actually use them, we're not prepared to to do that to them. Um, look at this one. Very fine engraving. Well, I actually I should mention the wings because the wings was the um, was the characteristic that he was using to identify the different species. So that that's why the wing is prominent here. Absolutely. Well, I don't think these would have been big. Have no, cuz he would have done it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it can't have been big. Um I mean there were different there were different editions. Um but I've seen that described in different ways as the first edition was when did that one come out? So this is 1782. First published in parts, 1776 to 1780. And then there was an, a supposedly another issue in 1781 and one in 1782 and another one in 1786. But the other way I've heard this described is that they came out with different title pages. which, mm-hmm. which So in a strange way it makes it sound like they're all done at the same time and then, and then issued in following years. So, yeah, I don't know whether that meant they were all printed and then it took him a year to colour a batch of 50 mm. <laughs> and then he thought, oh, I'll just put out another title page and there's another year and I'll do another 50. Mm. You know, I, I sort of feel practically that could, have, that could be what happened um, because it certainly, if he's doing everything, it can't be done quickly. But you know, the dictionaries are a classic um, endeavor that people want to add to. Um, and they become more than just the original work.
1: For another colourful dictionary, tune into our episode on Samuel Johnson and the story behind his creation of a dictionary of the English language. uncover a truly unique collection, visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Libraries' website. This podcast was brought to you by Napata Pātaka Kurero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.